First John and chapter 2. I'll commence reading from the seventh verse. It's ground we have already covered. Uh, for this morning, we will be looking at verse 12 to verse 14. But let's begin from the seventh verse. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment but an old commandment that you heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light, and hates his brother, is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Well, brethren, we come again to these expositions in, Paul, in John's first epistle, he wrote at least three which are kept in Scripture for us, and uh, this is the first one as an epistle. And we have thus far seen that his mind is particularly glued onto the subject of assurance of salvation. In fact, assurance of eternal salvation. How can I know now? that I will go to heaven after I die? That's a very important question. All of us, I am sure, have wrestled with this issue at one time or another. And this entire book is dedicated to that subject. For instance, in the passage that we looked at last time, which is the passage between verse 7 and uh, verse 12, one of the proofs that John put there is the proof of love, and especially loving the brethren, those who are Christians, having a special, unique, targeted love towards them. And he makes it abundantly clear here that if you are an individual who hates your brother, in other words, you maintain a grudge against a brother or a sister because of what they have done against you, most likely you may not be converted. 
That's what he's saying here. That clearly it cannot be the case. Now that doesn't mean you are never hurt. It simply means that you, you deal with the issues. You, you, you meet with the person. You, you talk things over. You, you accept an apology. You, you pray over it and you move on. You seek to ensure that you are a blessing in the lives of those, even those with whom you may have differences. Well, John, having been so negative, now changes into the positive, at least briefly, between verse 12 and verse 14. He's been negative. He's spoken about uh, the fact that if you don't love in this way, or let's read verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. And walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He's been fairly negative. He is concerned that he doesn't leave the people that are reading his epistle to simply think he is out to prove them to be unconverted. And so he deliberately changes his tone, and this time he begins to speak in positive tones, assuring tones, encouraging tones. And that's what we find in this poetic section between verse 12 and verse 14. It's a, it, it, it's a unique section, because it's not the whole epistle that is written in poetry. But in writing in poetic form, John clearly begins to speak in ways that are a little different from the way in which he has written elsewhere. For instance, when you look at these three verses, you immediately notice that he, he keeps repeating himself by, I am writing to you, I am writing to you, I am writing to you. And even that, he soon changes and says, I write to you, I write to you, I write to you. And the very people that he is writing to seem to be in three categories. There is the children, there are the fathers, and then there are the young men. And in each particular case, he seems to be saying something different to each category. To the children, he seems to say one thing. To the fathers, he seems to say another thing. And to the young men, he seems to say something else. Invariably, those who are engaged in Bible study will find this kind of writing as a, 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 a bone, a juicy bone for a dog. In other words, you want to, to go into a small corner and just chew over it and chew over it a little longer than you would the rest of this book. And again, invariably, you come away with a few different conclusions. And I won't bore you with the different um, arguments for different positions that commentators end up having. I will simply give you mine and then we will run along. 
And it is the fact that John, by referring to children and fathers and young men, is simply referring to three different levels of spiritual growth. That's it. So this is not children in terms of my team here, the A team. Eh? Good. It's not in terms of that and then fathers, those of us whose hair has either completely disappeared or it's white in color and so on. That's not what he has in mind. He has in mind different levels of growth. Becoming a Christian is being born. Born again. You enter into a new family. You are like a child. You, you are discovering new things all the time. You've just begun a journey of life. And then there is the whole period of growth that you are going through, which is being likened to that of a young person. There is a peculiar strength that you seem to have that enables you to deal with things as they are being thrown your way. And then finally, there is old age, maturity. And it's also a period of a Christian life, as we shall be noting in a few moments. Why is John doing this? John is doing this for the purpose of assurance. He's basically saying that there are certain experiences you go through if you are a Christian. And those experiences you are going through are assuring experiences. They are confirming that the grace of God has worked in your life. Let's go through each one of them one by one. First of all, soon after you get converted, there are two realities that you will find great comfort in as a child of God. Two of them. The first is pardon. Pardon from sin. And the second is a new perception. A new reality. Suddenly, you are able to understand what previously was just an X in an equation. And that's where John begins with those that he calls little children. Notice verse 12. He says there in verse 12, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then he repeats with respect to children, at the end of verse 13, I write to you children because you know the Father. The first experience is definitely that of peace concerning the forgiveness of your sins. When you go to him under conviction, under a sense of guilt. And you recognize that, that the Lord Jesus Christ, when, when He died on Calvary, He paid the price for your sin. And consequently, instead of trying to go before Him with your own merit and your own achievements, you simply go to Him empty-handed. Nothing in my hands I bring, 
simply to your cross I cling. When you come to him that way, how do you know he has accepted? It is that he fills you with his peace. There's a tranquility that comes in your soul. Somehow you get to sense that that which was against you has now been removed. You are forgiven by him. And it is a sense of peace that enables you to recognize that. And as John puts it here, it is for his name's sake. In other words, previously you were hoping that your own good works, your own church going, your own prayers, your own morality would merit God's pardon. But now you stop trying to depend on that. You know that it is on the merit of God's own Son alone, period. He has died. He has paid the price for my sin. I will demand no more. That's the first. The second is that of a new perception, a new knowledge. You come to know God as your father. As a real father. Our father who is in heaven. That's what John says here. I write to you children because you know the father. You enter into a new relationship with him. And indeed, with his son Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, as your elder brother. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said it, didn't he? In, in John chapter 17, that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Previously, your prayers were just saying prayers. That's what you were doing. Saying prayers. But now, you actually pray. You, you talk to God because you know Him. He is your Father. Previously, when you were in crisis, when you had any difficulties, praying is not what you inevitably did. No. You, you cried out to individuals, you, you kicked, you screamed, you used shortcuts, you, you, you did everything that anybody can do. But suddenly now, when you are in a crisis, a difficulty, there is a beeline to, 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 to your father's throne room. You bow to him and you say, Father, this is what I'm going through. Other people may not understand me, but I know you do. You know everything about me, and so on. You've entered into this new reality, this new relationship with God as your Father. Can you look back and say, yes, that's me. That's what happened to me. 
I used to go to church, or I was brought up in a Christian family, or never used to go to church, whatever it was. But then, there was a time when I knew my sins were forgiven. When God became a reality to me, I knew it. Can you speak in those terms? Because that's what it means to become a Christian. It is these two realities Together. If they are there, then yes, you should be able to say, even when John is speaking negatively about so many other areas and being hard about it, I have the proof that grace has visited me. I can speak for sure. My sins are forgiven. Not because I am good, but because Christ has paid the price for me. And I now have a father. God is real to me. I pray to him. He speaks. I speak to him. He speaks to me through his word. His, the Bible is real. It's alive to me. It's no longer a closed book as it was before. If that's true of you, you have become a Christian. But that's not the only proof that, God, that uh, John gives here. He goes on to deal with those who have been Christians for a long time. A long time. And the main attribute that brings great comfort for those who are in this category is an abiding perception of God as the one who remains faithful from the beginning. As one who remains faithful from the beginning. And this is the group that John tends to, whom he is calling fathers. He says there, in verse 13, the first part, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Verse 14, the first part. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. He seems to be saying only one thing. And it is this. That in your maturing days, the, the, the one reality that abides with you is this ongoing walk with God that proves Him to be the, the faithful God, a God who never changes, a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A God you can trust. That's what it means. And you know, it's, it's a joy to be a Christian. It's wonderful. It, 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 it never runs dry. It's it's a fountain that, that continues to flow with, 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 with renewed 
meaning and, and, and warmth and, and, and affection because of, of this continual walk that you have with the living God. You've gone over the, the ABCs of salvation, the, the initial doubts that perhaps you were having in the earlier parts of your Christian life. Am I a Christian or am I not? How come I've got this struggle and that struggle? You've gone well beyond that. But it hasn't become boring. No. You've continued to experience and to test something of the faithfulness of God. And consequently, the Bible, as you read it, confirms again and again that this God, who is your God, is the same God of the Bible from the beginning. You read, for instance, from the, the individuals such as Joseph, sold by his, his brothers when he was young, accused of uh, an attempted rape by his boss's wife. Spending years in prison. Finally coming out and, and being given the second highest position in the land. And still not getting to his head. Finally meeting the very brothers who at one time tried to kill him. And experiencing no grudge whatsoever in his own heart. But instead wanting to bless them. And you see a God who, who faithfully dealt with his child, sometimes over years of, of waiting, patiently waiting, and, and hardly anything coming out of this, making promises with human beings, and those promises are broken by those human beings, and, 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 and God still continuing with his child, and you are saying, that's me, that's me. That's the way in which the Lord has dealt with me over the years. I have known betrayal. Human beings have let me down. I've known years sometimes of, of knocking on heaven's door as it were. Lord, how long, how long? And the Lord has finally come through for me. I've been filled with joy. And when I've turned to those who were my enemies, who sought to destroy me, to, to undermine me, there's no, no anger within me, there's no grudge within me. Instead, I want to bless them. Oh, the God of Moses, brother Joseph, surely must be my God as well. You read the life of Moses. Whose life, first of all, is spared by a miraculous act of God. Brought up in a context where everybody else remained infidels, unbelievers. And he alone comes out of that context as a child of God. And in the process, as he... Is given a sense of leadership responsibility, spends no less than 40 years leading a people that care very little about the glory of his God. 
going through years of of discouragements and sometimes reaching points of even saying to God, God, just end the whole thing. Blot my name out of the book of life. I can't go on with these people anymore. I resign. And yet still remaining faithful with this God. Writing down our first books of the Bible. And finally, bidding them farewell and dying on that mountain. And you say, that's me. The same God of Moses who led him faithfully through all those difficulties. As he took firm hold of his assignments and did his work. This is my God as well. He has not kept me away from discouragements, but rather in the midst of the discouragements, my walk with Him has been richer. Indeed, I can say, I have seen His glory, especially in those same moments of dejection. I have known Him who is from the beginning. Or perhaps you, you read the life of a, of a man like David who had an outstanding beginning. Being faithful in his small tasks but experiencing something of the courage that only God can give. Fighting bears with his own hands. Fighting lions with his own hands. Fighting Goliaths with a catapult and a stone. Knowing something of being chosen to leadership, being a man of warfare, and routing so many armies. Knowing something of a time in life when you say, look, God has blessed me so much, I want to bless him back. And God saying, no. That will be for your children and your children's children. The work I gave you has been a work of warfare and you've done it well. And then messing it all up by wrong judgment, falling into sin, bringing disrepute to the Lord's name. Going through a period of hidden sin and consequently stubbornness. Until one day the Lord breaks through. Brings you to, to tears. To genuine repentance. Restoring your walk with Him. And yet things are never the same again. You read the Psalms of David. Psalm 32. Psalm 51. And you are saying, that's me. This is my God. The way he dealt with David is the way he has dealt with me over the years. I have been unfaithful. But he has been faithful from the beginning. And you rejoice in this God. 
When others are singing, great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, they don't know what they are talking about. It's just a song. But for you, there's a depth there. There's a depth. Because you know him who is from the beginning. You know his faithfulness. You know his consistency. You know you can trust him. You can entrust into his hands the remainder of your days. Because you have walked with him over the years. Let me ask those of you who claim you've been Christians 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Is this your testimony? Is this your testimony? In the books that we refer to as the Apocrypha, there's a testimony of one of the servants of the Lord who was about to be killed and he was being told to recant the Lord's name. He was, if I remember correctly, in his 90s. And he speaks in terms of so many years, so many years, the Lord has done me no wrong. Why should I today deny? Mm -hmm. I've walked with him so many years. He has dealt with me graciously. Why should I now deny him? Maybe if I just walked with him a year or two, I may still be suspecting. But these many years, I'm wondering whether that's you. Whether there's this life that you can speak about of a God who when you read his book and the way he dealt with his servants of old all along, you can say, this God is consistent. That's the way he's dealing with me even now. There's one more category that John deals with and it is the middle category. Between those who have just been converted and those who have been converted for a very long time. The life in between. Where do such individuals draw their assurance? It is in the power they now have which they did not have before. The power that enables them to overcome sin. To overcome sin. Let's quickly read verse 13, the, the middle part, and verse 14, the last part. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. The last part of verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. 
And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Now again, the thing I want you to notice is that he is not speaking in terms of you should. You should. You should overcome. You should be strong. You should have the word of God abiding in you. No, no, no. Just as before, he wasn't saying you should know. Him who was in the beginning. Or you should know the Father. He's speaking about facts. That this is true of you. And so when I'm writing to you, I'm not in any way suggesting that you are unconverted. No. I have confidence that it is a different matter with you because these realities are there in you. And in this particular case, he's saying to us, God does not leave jobs half done. God does not clean up your record in heaven and then leave your heart to be unclean on earth. Mm -mm. He cleans your record in heaven and he cleans your heart on earth as well. God does not just pardon you. He also empowers you. He doesn't just saves you, save you. He also sanctifies you. He does both. And so what you discover with those that become Christians the first time is that uh, you know, they, they, they experience liberation, freedom. They, 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 there were some sins which at one time they, they were changed to before their conversion. And they, they just find a, a new freedom to, 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 to just look at those sins and say, away with you. And I always warn them that that's a honeymoon period. Because a few months later, Perhaps a year later, those chains begin to dangle by the feet. And often you find the young Christian coming to see you. Pastor, uh, I don't think I'm converted. Why don't you think you're converted? You know, maybe I was just deceiving myself. Because, you know, these things that were once so much part of my life before, they are finding their way back into my life. And I'm really struggling. And I say, welcome to the club. The honeymoon is over. Put on the gloves. It's now time to fight. That's the Christian life. It is a fight where you now become an enemy of those same sins. You put on the gloves as it were and put up a good fight to defeat them in your life. Sanctification is where you cooperate with the Holy Spirit. 
in you to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Yes, you put them to death with His Spirit's help. That's Christianity. That's Christianity. And hence you begin to go up the ladder of godliness from one stage to the other, one stage to the other. And you are there. There is this renewed strength, renewed vigor as you are dealing with those same vices that were once true in your life. And you know what the Holy Spirit uses? His word. His word. The Bible says they are right to young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. The Holy Spirit, as you are sitting under the preaching of the word of God regularly, consistently, as you are attending Bible studies and, and you are studying the word of God and as, as you read the Bible on your own, that word that is coming into you and, and settling down in you, it is that word that the Holy Spirit uses to enable you to fight sin in your life. Because the word of God is food. It's spiritual food. Let me put it this way. And I think I've been a pastor long enough for you to believe me. Almost always, the first thing that happens in a person's life before they mess up their lives is that they begin to skimp on church attendance and on Bible reading. This book is shut from Monday up until Saturday and is picked up again on Sunday the few Sundays they go to church. The many other Sundays it's I'm busy. I've got this project and that project and that project. You know, there's so many demands on my life. There's a funeral there, a sickness in the other town and so on. I'm busy. I don't have time for church. I often have to say to those individuals, so what are you saying about us? We are not busy. But anyway, that's not the issue. And then as they get weaker and weaker and weaker, that temptation which at one time they would have easily beaten, now brings them down. It makes sense, friends. It makes sense. You try it. Eh? Spend one whole week without eating any food. Just drink water. And then go and say to Esther Piri or Catherine Piri, you, you woman, who are you? I wish you well. I mean, you've no strength. You haven't been eating. You've starved yourself. What makes you think that because she's a woman you can beat her? 
And yet that's exactly what happens. Missing church, closed Bible studies, rather, missing Bible studies, closed Bibles the whole week, and then somehow you expect that when the devil walks through your front door, you'll be able to beat him. You can't. You are strong because the word of God abides in you, and consequently you overcome the evil one. And often by the time we exercise discipline as elders on anybody, they've been missing a long time. All right. All right. All right. So the point is clear here. That there's a key to that middle portion. And it is this. Being faithful in drinking in God's word, growing up in him, jealously guarding the times when I read the Bible, when I go to church for services and Bible studies, jealously guarding them. Even when there's pressure from, from the social circles, when there's pressure upon my time from the economic circles, I'm, I'm jealously guarding them because I need strength to maintain the fights of the Christian life. Is this your experience in midlife? Is that what's true? Because that's Christianity. That's Christianity. See, Christianity is a life. That's what it is. It's a life. And, and like the physical life, we grow. We, we go through stages. We're young. We go through midlife. With all its challenges. And that's where a lot of people make it or break it. It's in that middle section of life. And then finally, you come through on the opposite end. When you have matured. The world doesn't even want to see you in the offices anymore. They've thrown you on the other side. It's the same with the spiritual world. A young Christian is always bubbling about forgiveness of sins. Eh? That's where the joy is. The God who forgives sin. Oh, perfect redemption. The purchase of God. Every believer who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, everybody. It's a God who forgives. Hallelujah. That's the young Christian. Then come the middle years. I am weak, but thou art strong. Aha. I'm getting some feedback here. From those who are in the middle years. Jesus, keep me from all wrong. I'll be satisfied as long as I walk. Let me walk. 
then come the latter years. Great is thy faithfulness. <laughs> That's the Christian life. I want to ask, are you in this journey? Are you? Are you in this journey? This growth process? Can you speak from an experiential level that this journey, I know it from experience. If not, here's my advice to you. Strong advice. Stop calling yourself a Christian. You're still dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins. You still need life. Life from above. Christianity is not simply having a name put on a church membership list, going through some waters of baptism and things like that. No, it's real life. I know Him. He's my Father. My sins have been forgiven. I'm putting up a good, gallant fight for morality, for spirituality, for godliness. Yes, I have known His faithfulness. That's Christianity. But if you're one who can testify and say, yes, that's me, then I'm saying let's rejoice together for the wonderful change that God has brought about in our lives. Amen.